This is your captain speaking, and you are listening to Liberty Buzzard. Episode 18. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Tom Sumstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we pick at the news along the highway of American culture. It's Liberty Buzzard, your favorite show, I think, for our... How many listeners are we up to today, Thomas? Oh, we're at least at five or six listeners. Maybe Five even or six listeners. <laughs> no, Shout out to our five that. or six listeners out there. We should start going ahead and get them by name. What some shows do, though, is they only count the listeners who've reached out and asked questions or made comments, so they don't look at any of the statistics, and every listener who reaches out gets a listener number. Uh, oh. So we could do that. So you're like, oh, we have at least you know three confirmed listeners who've had three comments, and uh, so this is listener number one, listener number two, that sort of thing. Like, that could be fun. That could be fun. So if you're listening, and you'd like a shout-out on, uh, on our show, because one day Thomas and I are going to be really famous, and you want to join on that fame. You know, I, I suggest you go ahead and uh, give us some feedback. Send us a message. Shoot us an email. Give us a call. LibertyBuzzard.com <laughs> So now that we've given a commercial for the show you're already listening to, let's uh, let's talk about the news. Well, you know, there's a lot going on today, Thomas. We have a, uh, a new Supreme Court Justice nominee. Uh, what's this? Uh, Kavanaugh is his last name. Is it Kevin Kavanaugh? Do you know anything about this guy? I don't know anything about him. So here's here's what's interesting about the Trump presidency in general, and that is that in some ways this is the karma presidency for the left. They have been using various institutions to advance their agenda and various techniques to advance their agenda for the last 50 years, and now suddenly those institutions and those techniques are being used against them, sometimes for the very first time. Bum, bum, bum. They're like, no, it's not fair that you use this. This is only supposed to be used for us. We put our people in charge of the EPA to you know, secretly pass all of these regulations and rules. You're not supposed to do that and undo what we passed. And uh, the left has been leaning very heavily on the courts to pass law effectively, where they create law, sometimes out of whole cloth, by squinting at the Constitution and saying, oh yeah, there's a right here in the Constitution. It's not explicitly stated by the Founding Fathers, but it's implied. If you squint and make your eyes all fuzzy, a this right to an abortion or, or gay marriage comes out of the Constitution. And the reality is, is that by doing that, they have skipped the legislative process. They've skipped the debate process and the consensus building process and uh, instead gone straight to the courts. And now, presumably, they're about to lose all of that. They're about to lose their majority or their quasi majority in the courts because Kennedy was a swing vote. And he sw- he would swing to them on the social issues uh, of the day and he would swing to the right on the economic issues. So he's kind of a that kind of rare libertarian who is socially liberal and economically conservative. And um, the left is just freaking out all over again. It's like they freaked out when Kennedy retired because they knew they were going to get a bad pick. And wouldn't you know it, they got a bad pick from their perspective. And (laughs) well, I don't, and they're acting all surprised. I think Trump could have picked, you know, uh, liberal McLiberalston as the next judge, and they would have screamed and moaned about, it, moaned about it just because he's Trump, and they they by nature can't agree with anything he says or you know or doesn't say. Um, Which is actually just... a really good point because because that and I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right that if they if Trump had picked a consensus candidate, they still would have opposed him. They had to find something to criticize, and so that strategy though is backfired because if Trump knows 
whoever he picks is going to get criticized like crazy. He has zero incentive to find somebody who's a consensus pick. And instead he's going to pick, you know, his favorite guy who's right on all the issues that he, that he cares the most about. And, you know, if you're going to howl and scream regardless, then why don't I just do whatever I want? So I think the interesting thing about his pick is that uh, for both of his picks, Kavanaugh or Gorsuch and now Kavanaugh, They've been very, uh, quote, unquote, and this is me uh, reading other experts because I don't know anything about Kavanaugh, quote, unquote, mainstream conservatives. Um, so he didn't tack hard Tea Party right in his in his uh, uh, pick for Supreme Court justice. He went very mainstream based on a list that uh, was developed, I, I think, by the Heritage Foundation. I think that's correct. Um so it's, it's quote unquote very mainstream. And I think I read this morning that one of the, uh, Tea Party further right, uh, wing, uh, senators or, or I don't know, some politician, um, who has supported Trump in the past, uh, stepped away from that support and said that he caved in to the mainstream by, uh, by selecting Kavanaugh. So, um, you know, and I, I don't think it's just Trump. I think Obama faced the same thing when he was president, but you never can please everybody, can you? I mean, if you're if everybody's happy, you're doing something wrong as president. So I guess everybody's going to find and, some fault with this pick. That's right. And there, everyone has different issues in which they're using to score a uh, Supreme Court justice and like who what you know some people really care about campaign finance reform they're like this is the number one issue if we can't fix this the republic is going to fail and other people really don't care about campaign finance reform very much at all and they're content with the way things are and you know so it's not just about where they are on the issues which can be really hard to tell by the way where a judge is on the issues because they're not allowed to tell you and um so you have to kind of look at their previous decisions and ch- kind of read the tea leaves. And that can be a bit of a challenge trying to figure out, you know, just how conservative somebody really is. So, you know, sometimes there's a case. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. According to the press that I was reading up on the subject, you know, the the the, the, the political packs trying to influence this, the, the rent seekers, you know, the, the lobbyists, what have you uh, on the conservative side are really going after those uh Democratic senators in conservative states, uh, since this is such a, a, a mainstream conservative pick, they're really going to they're going to go after those uh, guys hard. And uh, I think a couple of the quotes that I saw were that they're going to, in the confirmation process, ask the justice uh, if he would dismantle the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, certain provisions within there. Uh, and of course, there's this big thing about Roe versus Wade and abortion. You know, they're going to ask him what he would do. And there's all these hypotheticals, right? But a justice can't say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. A justice, by definition, has to consider each and every single individual case based on the merits of that case and that case alone. And in the case of the U.S. Supreme Court, has to uh, call it constitutional or not constitutional based on the interpretation of their constitution. So this this circus that is about to be the confirmation process is going to be kind of ridiculous, don't you think? Right, because... They're allowed to ask and they want to ask because it makes their constituents happy, but the justice is not allowed to answer. And so it really is a circus. It really is theater. Uh, the, the whole point of the confirmation process is supposed to be about verifying the integrity of the person. You know, judges used to be impeached for 
you know, using foul language. Like there was a sense that they had to be icons of virtue. Um, we don't really have that expectation anymore. Uh, we don't expect them to be any more virtuous than the next person. And we haven't impeached a Supreme Court justice in almost 100 years. Uh, we did impeach a federal court judge uh, a little while ago, but it wasn't over uh, bad for conduct. sexual misconduct. Yeah. Uh, oh, I guess there was one for sexual misconduct. I think we also impeached a federal court judge for uh, keeping the Ten Commandments up in his uh, courtroom. I think, uh, which is yeah, ironic because the one. Ten Commandments are up in the Supreme Courtroom right now. <laughs> Irony. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, so the Supreme Court's like, oh, it's illegal for you to have the Ten Commandments. I mean, we can have the Ten Commandments because, you know, we're a law unto ourselves. But no, you can't have the Ten Commandments in your courtroom. because My sort favorite of standard indication... is the double standard. Yeah, <laughs> because it allows me to not have to live under the same rules that you live under. Oh, yes. So... Um, overall, I'm, I'm optimistic about this pick. And I felt that this was the one biggest benefit of a Trump presidency over a Hillary presidency because I knew I wasn't going to like anyone that Hillary was going to pick. They're both, though, going to pick very statist uh, type um, uh, choices. So uh, this new pick, I believe, is very statist in the sense that um, Kavanaugh believes in, you know, a very strong presidency and you know, isn't going to be somebody who's going to push back on Trump as he gathers more power into his office. But you know what? I don't think anyone that Hillary would have picked would have been any different. Um, the trend is or better. Right. Uh, on that issue. So, you know, yeah. Hillary would have picked somebody who would have gathered more power onto Hillary. Uh, Trump is picking somebody who's gathering more power onto Trump. Uh, the, you know, the problem with this is that we're not always going to have a Republican in office or if Hillary had gotten elected, we're not always going to have a Democrat. You only want as powerful of a president as you're willing giving the other side. And I think, you know, a lot of the things that Obama did to increase the power of the presidency, the left is realizing, oh, maybe this was a mistake. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't have given so much power to the presidency. You know, maybe Obama should have taken more of his policies through Congress instead of just doing them by executive order, because what is done by executive order can be undone by executive order. And more and more, we're getting to the point where the first week in office, there's this like block of laws that just get changed within a week, you know, president to president. And, you know, it's been that way, like the Mexico City um, policy where you know, we give half a billion dollars to Planned Parenthood, right? Like the very first thing most Republicans do when they get in office is they suspend that money to Planned Parenthood. And the, for one of the first things that most Democrats do when they get in office is that they unsuspend that money to Planned Parenthood. And that used to just be a handful of things. Now it's a whole pile of things. And suddenly voting for president is becoming more and more important than it used to be. It used to be you know, it was really your local elections that mattered. Your local representatives are the ones who picked the senators. They are the ones who passed most of the laws that affected you. And the federal government's been getting more powerful and the presidency's been getting more powerful. And your local representatives are getting less powerful and less important. They no longer select your senators. And I think that that's a troubling trend because we are happiest as Americans when we're able to live under different laws. We aren't uh, a single nation. We are a collection of nations or a collection of states. State is another word for nation. And the whole beauty of our system is that as a Texan, I don't have to live under California laws and they don't have to live under Texas laws. And we can be happy with each other, not living under each other's laws. But when we try to pass a law for the whole country and we're like, oh, the Texas approach should be the approach in California. 
or the California approach should be the approach in Texas, suddenly now we have reason to hate each other. Because I'm like, I don't want to live under your, you know, fuel efficiency guidelines. <laughs> you know, I sure if you California's got a smog problem, you want to do that, do that. But don't force us to live under that law unless we choose to. Yeah. Um, and I would I would say I think if you look back at history, the trend in human the trend in governance is always to consolidate power at the highest level right so people you always going to get the ambitious people that that want to go to the top that's where they're going to go and the trend there is going to be to consolidate power consolidate power consolidate power so i am i surprised that over the course of time uh that our republic has consolidated power at the top no i'm not surprised at all it started off at the very beginning even ben franklin said you have a republic if you can keep it um and I see the consolidation of power not only at the federal level, but you even at the uh, local to state level. I mean, I think, and, I, and, I, and I'm going to change it up a little bit, but you know, you have um, you have the urban population who has one lifestyle, you have the rural population which is one lifestyle, um, and in one of the things as a more rural leaning type person. Now, I don't want to live under the edicts of uh, someone who lives in a densely populated city because our lifestyles and our concerns are different. Uh, and what I'm thinking of specifically here is uh, building codes and, 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 and the such. You know, I live in an unincorporated area of the county, and I like it that way because we have a lot of space out here. And I don't necessarily want to be incorporated into a city like Austin or Dallas or Houston and be told by that big government uh, how I can build, what I can build, et cetera, et cetera, on my property way out here. And it's not just property because I'm talking about it. It extends to several areas, um, mostly to governance. I think the social stuff is, is, is there too, but it's less of a concern for me personally. But I think that what the trend is, is, uh, you know, you have that that uh, concept called tyranny of the majority and the tyranny of the majority tends to uh, what's the best way to say this tends to be manipulated in such a way as to consolidate power within the state and then uh, concurrently within the federal government. So I, I don't know what your take is on that, but that's kind of what I see from my perspective way, way down here at the very bottom bottomest rung of the uh, the political ladder. So the idea of our constitutional republic, which I did hear Kavanaugh say that phrase, which warmed my heart a little bit, because a lot of people talk about how we're in a democracy, and we're not actually in a democracy. If we are in a true democracy, we'd have a parliament in a parliamentary system. Uh, we don't. We have a constitutional republic that's not based off the British model, which all the rest of the world has copied England and their governments, if they have a democracy, uh, as far as I know, uh, ours is different. We have a Senate and a Congress, and we're modeled after the Roman system. There's a reason why we have Roman architecture in all of our buildings, and we have a Senate, and we vote in Latin. So when they vote, they've used the Latin words for yes and no, I and nay, instead of the English words for yes and no. That's not by accident. Um, and the constitutional republic that we have, the idea behind it was majority rule and minority rights, where the majority isn't able to just steamroll over the minority. And there are protections in place to protect the minority, especially from changes to the Constitution itself. So to change the Constitution, you, you can't just have a majority. You have to have a two-thirds majority or a four-fifths majority of the states to pass um, 
the amendment. And that is a big deal of protection. Like that's, you can't just like pass a constitutional amendment that Texans have to pay twice in taxes as the rest of the country. Um, you, you know, you'd have to be able to get four fifths of the states to agree with you on that. And I think that's really good. And I think that's really important because you're right. You know, a thousand tyrants one mile away is just as bad as one tyrant a thousand miles away. And ah, the Patriot. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mel Gibson. Yeah. So, you know, but he was th that line from that movie comes from a very old line of American thinking of, you know, we are as afraid of our local representatives you know, as we are of our foreign ones. There's a reason in Texas we only let the Texas legislature meet every other year. So we force the legislature to take a year break unless there's an emergency. And if there's an emergency, the governor can call a special session. Um, but that special session only lasts for one month. It's very limited. We have very specific guardrails on our legislature, and it has been a brilliant thing. And uh, I, I, I said when I worked in the legislature, I remember talking with uh, the chief of staff of the office I was in. I was working for a state rep. She's like, I don't know how other states do it meeting every year because there's never a time to observe the effects of the laws that you've passed when you're constantly making changes. How do you know if the changes are good or not? So we force our legislators to have a year of reflection to think about what they did. It's like, now go and time out and think about what you did and come out when you've learned a lesson, right? It's like, that is a really brilliant way of running a government. And, um, it's one of the things I love about Texas. And I hope we never lose that the, a meeting every other year. I'm getting a warm and fuzzy, a single tear is rolling down my cheek about being a proud Texan over here. But I mean, yeah, I mean, right. You have states like, uh, of course, you know, we we always like to hate on California over here in Texas because, um, yeah, I guess they're the yin to our yang or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they they're a they're a permanently seated legislature, are they not? I don't know if they're permanently seated, but they meet every year for sure, and they're. Yeah. very frequent in their meetings. Congress sort of meets every year, but they have so much vacation time. They only meet for like 50 or 60 days out of the year. Like they just, they're constantly on recess. I saw, I saw a YouTube video on this that like showed the calendar, and like X'd out all the days that they don't actually meet. And um, they don't actually meet that much, that often, but they do meet every year. And it does make sense for Congress to meet every year. Cause anytime you have like issues of national defense, you got to have a more active body. Otherwise the executive will just take over. So it is a, a one luxury of not having to worry about defending Texas is that we don't have to be, have quite as an active of a uh, legislative branch. So let's talk about legislatures, legislation, the making of laws, since you're kind of the uh, the I would I would say the expert in this one, and you know a Supreme Court nominee. I think one of the big meltdowns on the left is the repeal of Roe versus Wade. You know they're they're scared that as soon as he gets confirmed, the next day they're going to appeal Roe versus Wade, and everybody's going to be put in concentration camps, and we're all going to die. Um, so you know you read some of the. Some, some some of the crackpots out there that's on the left that's what they're talking about but uh you know it's not like a supreme court can just say hey you remember that decision we made back in 19 what was it 72 right i think roe versus wade was 72 remember that decision we made back then yeah we're gonna go ahead and revisit that no a petition has to be put before them to revisit that so and correct me if i'm wrong on this thomas but they just can't go and choose whatever they want to go and look at 
they're going to be uh, only choosing what they're going to hear based on the petitions brought before the Supreme Court. Is that correct? That's right. So they have to wait for a pro-life bill to make its way to the Supreme Court. That said, there are a whole bunch of pro-life bills in the court system right now. So there are bills that they could pull in. But let's let's say as soon as Kavanaugh is appointed and he sits down, the very next bill they pick is one where they're able to dismantle Roe versus Wade. Let's kind of walk through what the ramifications of that will be. The ramifications the day after that will be no ramifications because undoing Roe versus Wade doesn't make it legal to have abortions in Texas in United States. It just makes it possible to pass a law that makes abortions legal uh, in your state. And it will go back to the federalistic system. So the idea of federalism is that each state has its own laws and people can vote with their feet. So if you want to have an abortion and you live in California, well, don't worry. California is in no rush to pass a law banning abortion. Now, if you're in the Midwest or if you're in uh, the South, uh, the legislature may already have plans in pl- place to expedite a a bill curtailing abortion or regulating it or maybe outlawing it altogether. And so th- this is where suddenly states will start to be able to have different laws, which I think is really good for states to be able to have their own laws and we're able to show, hey, you know, curtailing abortion has these benefits and take a look, just like we're seeing with the states that are legalizing uh, marijuana. We're able to observe, you know, the the country is paying very close attention, you know, the results on Colorado and on Washington state, you know, to see if they have riots in the streets and all chaos is breaking loose. And um, what will start is a national, an actual national debate, the debate we never had in the first place on abortion, because there was no law that was passed. There was no bill that was taken through Congress um, legalizing abortion. It just happened all at once by the Supreme Court. And we never were able really to debate this as a country. And I want to see that debate happen. I want to see people who are advocating killing babies in the womb make a case for themselves. (laughs) They have not been doing well in the arena of uh, public opinion uh, with all of the new scientific advancements, right? We know a lot more about babies in the womb now than we did 40 years ago. And they've been losing... Uh, each generation is more pro-life than the previous generation because they grew up with sonogram pictures and they grew up with, you know, listening to fetal heartbeats and they grew up with 4D images now where you can see the baby rendered in three dimensions and moving and the dimension of time. Like, that's incredible. And it's really hard to say, oh, this thing with a nose and a mouth and a heartbeat and its own DNA uh, and its own genetic structure is just a blob of cells. You're like, no, I see it. (laughs) I don't believe you. And uh, I think that debate's going to be really good for the country to have. And we'll finally be able to have it once we go back to kind of democracy mode on this issue. Yeah, uh, it's not going to be an easy debate. That, that's for sure. I think you have on the left side an ideology of pro-choice that is so ingrained uh, in the very DNA of their thought process that it is going to be a long, difficult conversation I don't even think that people can have a rational conversation about that. Uh, it's even, I mean, you know, left, right, what have you. It's a, it's a very fundamentally, I won't say troubling is not the word I'm looking for, a difficult conversation. It is a fundamentally difficult conversation because passions, and there's just no better way to say it. It's not a thought. It's not an opinion. Passions on both sides are so high. And then you have everybody in the middle who just doesn't want to think about it. 
Um, I think most of the people in the middle, when you ask them about abortions, you know, they give you, they want to give you a, a middle of the road answer. Um, of, oh, I hate abortions. It's a terrible thing, but it should be the mom's choice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then they don't want to talk about it anymore because it's such a painful subject to talk about. So, um, I, I do think that as, as, you know, as soon as, you know, that's based on the assumption that he will get confirmed. If judge Kavanaugh is confirmed as the next justice of the Supreme court, um, I think that it will be not too long after that uh, the, 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 the pro-life uh, lobby does make a concerted effort to push Ro- uh, this, uh, a reconsideration of Roe versus Wade before the Supreme Court. Now, just because they get a petition, they don't have to actually accept it. What do you think, Thomas, is the likelihood that uh, a, uh, a newly seated Supreme Court uh, with a conservative right bent will actually receive and accept a new petition to consider uh, abortion. So in order for the Supreme Court to take on a case, I think it's four justices have to say yes uh, to that case. So you know, if we take a look at the justices, let's see if we can find uh, four that would be a clear yes on taking the case and hearing it. So Clarence Thomas, I think, is a clear yes. Uh, J- Chief Justice Roberts, I think, is probably a solid yes. Um, Alito, probably a solid yes. And then um, maybe Gorsuch for the other one uh, is probably the, another yes if you need one. So I, I think, and then that's not counting the new guy. Uh, so I think that uh, Kavanaugh would most likely be a yes. It, it's really hard, though, because the way to get appointed with a Republican as president is to look as conservative as possible, even if in your heart of hearts you don't think that way. <laughs> so um, we have been bamboozled. Uh, s- several of the liberal members of the court were appointed by Republican presidents. Because remember, we haven't had that many Democrat presidents in the last 30 years. So we had uh, eight years of Reagan. We had four years of Bush, so that's 12 years of Republicans. So we had eight years of Democrat and eight years of Republicans, and that cancels itself out. And then we had uh, Obama, which is eight, eight years Democrat. Eight years Democrat. Yeah. And so with the culmination of Trump will be, I think, tied uh, year for year. And um, I'm assuming Trump's going to get reelected. I, I don't uh, see the Democrats having a good candidate to run against him. Uh, and so... It'll be interesting to see, especially to see if Trump lives that long. He's our oldest president. He seems to be in good health, um, but you never know. You know, the, the Grim Reaper comes for us all. Uh, but if we had eight years of, of Trump, I think that uh, we would see a very different court because several of these members are very old. Yeah, I mean, the, there's some. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's getting on up there. I mean, didn't didn't she fall asleep in a recent State of the Union? Um, you know, I can't say I blame her. I think I fell asleep in that one too, but, uh, um, what is she? 89? She's 85. She was born in 1933. So she's a uh, depression baby. Um, yeah. So yeah, she, and then who's next in age behind her? I don't know. The Supreme Court. I'm not that familiar with the court to be able to sort them by age. I want to say, you know, we're going to have to Google this one because I want to say Clarence Thomas. But, of course, you know, that's not going to change. But I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg is definitely the oldest uh, oldest member of the court. I'm going to have to go back and, and look at the Supreme Court. But uh, she's she's getting up there in age. And uh, I think if, if Hillary had been elected president, that was her plan to retire. I think she's just holding on tooth and nail right now. 
Okay. To not give Trump another Th- Thanks to the power of the interwebs, I have a list. So G- Ginsburg's the oldest at 85, followed by Kennedy, who's retiring at 81. Clarence Thomas yep. is 70. Um, Stephen Bayer, uh, Breyer, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, is 79. Um, and then Alito, 68. Sotomayor is 64. Keegan is 58. And Gorsuch is 50. Uh, so the yeah the Kennedy was actually one of the older ones and he's he's retiring now. Um, but yeah, Ginsburg is the next yeah. one, eighty five. Uh, a lot of justices die. Um, you know they don't ever retire, and sometimes it's a surprise, like that justice who died um, in the last year, Sc- of uh, Scalia. Scalia, who died during Obama's presidency. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it's it's something to keep an eye on. This just realize as you listen to all of the drama that a lot of it is theater, and we're probably not going to cover the theater. We try to cover things of substance on this show, <laughs> um, and we try. we try. Although sometimes the theater is just it's too much to resist. It's very entertaining. It's too good. Yeah, and and we have a president who has a real uh, flair for the dramatic, right? So he. Uh, announced i'm going to announce my pick on primetime television tonight right so he's able to hijack all of the primetime television he gave all of the Genius. stations uh free material that was going to give them good ratings right there's this really great symbiotic relationship between the mainstream media and the president he um whenever he attacks the new york times as the failing new york times I have a theory that every time he puts that in a tweet, the New York Times gets a thousand new subscribers, you know, because what's their tagline? Democracy dies in darkness. It's like, support us or democracy will die. New York Times, numbers are way up thanks to Trump. They have more subscribers than they've had in a long time. They're making more money than they have in a long time. And, you know, he just saved, you know, it costs a lot of money to make a TV show. You know, it may cost, you know, half a million dollars to make an episode of a TV show. And for three stations, you know, that's $1.5 million for ABC, NBC, and CBS. And Trump replaced at least a one-hour TV show with himself that they didn't have to pay for. <laughs> like, it was a great gift that he gave the mainstream Genius. media. And uh, in exchange, they gave him primetime coverage. So, uh, it, anyway, I, I'm... I'm a- Trump is the best thing to happen to mainstream media in a long, long time, and vice versa. I mean, they are they are in a co-symbiotic relationship right now, a codependent relationship of negativity. I mean, they might as well be an abusive couple uh, out in a trailer park somewhere <laughs> because they are just feeding off of each other and just ramping each other up, and it's it's funny to watch. That I think is a perfect funny. way to end the show. The mainstream media and Donald Trump living in a trailer park, shouting at each other, but neither one of them can leave because of how toxic and destructive. You can't arrest him. <laughs> I love him. Oh, we want to know what you think. Been there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we want to know what you think. LibertyBuzzer.com. Drop us a line. Uh, get a listener number we will start assigning them so if you leave a comment on liberty buzzard and we respond to it you will get an official uh, listener number that you will have uh, for the rest of your day so anyway i'm thomas umstead jr i'm dustin hammett and you've been listening to liberty buzzard